0: Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Welcome to another Macquarie Life Church podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. Hey Macquarie, how are you going? Uh, It's great to have you with us today. Welcome to church, uh, where we continue our series today on Where to From Here, a study through the book of Acts. And I want to look at Acts chapter 5 today. Uh, But before we do, a couple of things God's been putting in my heart recently. You're seeing COVID 19 start to spike up again a little bit. And I want to encourage you with the media and some of the things there, don't be too fearful. In 1 Peter 5 7, it says, to cast all of our worries upon him because he cares for you. Basically, God's got this. Uh, I know that in some of my circles, particularly at at work, there's anxiety is growing. There's this tension growing. We haven't haven't conquered this thing, but God is in control. And what's happening with COVID-19 in Australia at the moment reminds me a lot of the Spice Girls. Uh, Everyone's everyone's really doing their best, except Victoria. Uh, Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, and, and you'll see the, look, we're seeing the restrictions, they're going up and down, they're quite flexible at the moment. And, and I thought that wearing a mask and gloves would be enough for me to go to Woolies, but it turns out I was wrong. You, you've got to wear clothes too. Um, okay, we're going to look at Acts chapter 5. But to study Acts chapter 5, you first have to start in Acts chapter 4. So let's have a look at the passage in Acts chapter 4. We'll start at verse 32. This is the church happening right now. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything that they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses, sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, And it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field that he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So, Barnabas, he walks up in front of a worship service in this new church. He's liquidated everything that he owns. From what we can gather, he was quite wealthy. And he has these briefcases full of cash that he lays down at the altar, gives it to the apostles so they could distribute it to people who had need. His actions would have brought him recognition. It would have brought him praise. And it would have brought brought him, dare I say, status in the church. And the apostles started calling him the encourager. Hey, look, here comes the encourager. Uh, It'd be pretty cool to have a nickname like that. Unlike some of the ones I got in high school that aren't fit for the pulpit. Um, And I wish the elders would stop calling me them. But anyway, um, in Acts, that's all it says about Barnabas at this point. But later in Acts and in the New Testament, we see these things about our mate Barney. He becomes an advocate for the apostle Paul in Acts chapter 9. He's set up as the pastor of the new Gentile converts in Antioch in Acts chapter 11. He's appointed an administrator like the treasurer over the church's entire relief efforts for the poor in Acts chapter 11 and he's the first travel partner for Paul on his missionary journeys in Acts 13. He serves as a lawyer in Acts 15 as an advocate for John Mark trying to fight for him to get a second chance. So this guy Barnabas He becomes a rock star in the church. He is something big and significant in this movement. Barnabas the encourager stands out as one of the most mature, uh, reliable and lovable leaders of the early church. And his ministry starts, the whole thing kicks off from a demonstration of his generous and caring love for people. And then we hit Acts chapter 5. Let's have a read of this, starting at verse 1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and laid it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal. What made you think of doing such a thing? Get what he says here. You've not just lied to humans, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out to bury him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, Is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who just buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she too fell down at his feet and died. Then the young man came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Frankly, this is a bizarre approach to church growth, killing people at the offering. I wanted to originally title this message, where to from here, give or die, but the elders weren't big on it. Uh, So I've called it Nix the Mix, and that'll become a bit more obvious later in the message. So against the background of the church that is growing, it's an incredible community, it is seeing provision and care for one another, this devastating Sunday hits the church. Ananias and Sapphira both drop dead. And it doesn't really fit with the narrative of what's happening in this move of God. So why does Luke, the author, bring this uh, depressing story in to interrupt the account? Barnabas lays money at the apostles' feet, and so do Ananias and Sapphira. And from what we'll see, Luke is painting a picture of a stark contrast between the two. Uh, Ananias and Sapphira were imitating Barnabas because he got public recognition, he got status, and he got a launch into ministry with credibility from what he did. And Ananias and Sapphira thought that it would be nice if they got a piece of that too. So they did the same thing to try and be seen as being generous, as holy, and as on fire. So they schemed together, and they gave to be noticed. It's a performance trap. They're trying to make people think that there's something that they're not, that they're more spiritual, more holy than they really are. Now get this, the sin is not that they didn't give everything. They didn't have to. Uh, They weren't commanded to give anything at all. All contributions were voluntary, or as Donna beautifully pointed out, a free will gift. The sin isn't even that they kept some of the money. The sin is that they weren't authentic. They lied. They'd vowed to the Holy Spirit that they would give everything. It it wasn't their love of money. It it, it was their glory-seeking and their hypocrisy that got them in trouble with the Holy Spirit. Uh, hypocrite, the word hypocrite is actually the Greek word for actor in the amphitheatres in ancient Greece, if you were watching a play or a show, you would be quite far away from the stage, from the f- performances. And so the actors, or the hypocrites at the time, would wear these enormous, giant, oversized masks that masks that showed, uh, like, uh, exaggerated emotions of what they were trying to portray so that people in the back row could see what was going on. Uh, and these guys, Ananias and Sapphira... They were wearing a mask. They weren't showing us what was really going on underneath. They were pretending to be someone that they weren't, so that they would be treated in a different way. Uh, I've worn masks in church. Uh, I've been a hypocrite. And dare say I will be again. And if I may may be so bold, I'm probably not the only one. (laughs) Can I challenge you? And this is, this is hard to start with. We'll get into some territory that's nicer later. Can I challenge you not to edit or uh, Photoshop your Christianity for appearance sake? Authenticity, honesty, being real and vulnerable with God is key to finding out where we go from here. Ananias and Sapphira remind me a lot of the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day. Um, Jesus spoke of them that they loved to be seen by other people. In Matthew 23, he even says that the uh, Pharisees wanted the place of honour at feasts. They wanted to have the best seats in the synagogue. They wanted to be greeted in the marketplace and called rabbis by the people in the community. The, the, The Pharisees wanted to be seen and acknowledged and so did Ananias and Sapphira. But Peter calls it out, Big Pete, with divine discernment he attributes their scheme to the enemy and he calls it lying to the Holy Spirit. Now this is an enormous call from Peter because at that time things were going really well. Here's what I would have done had I been Peter. I would have said, oh look, hold on, things are going great, church is booming, People are getting converted, there's so much love and unity and look, in reality, Ananias and Sapphira have just flogged their land and brought some of the money, quite a bunch of money, into the church, maybe I should just call me Jets. But they aren't Peter's thoughts, he comes at them with, did you think you could fool the Holy Spirit? Peter understood that such things would soon arise in local assemblies of the church. Later in the scriptures, in 2 Peter 2, he writes about people in their greed will try to exploit the church through deceptive words. Now, it's worth noting, here's some Bible history. God judges deception very severely at the beginning of a new period in salvation or church history. In Leviticus 10 just after the tabernacle had been built and they'd opened the doors. God kills Nadab and Abihu for trying to present what they called false fire to the Lord. In Joshua 7, Achan is killed because he disobeyed orders just after Israel had entered the promised land. The timing of God's severity on deception usually lines up with an enormous move in the kingdom. And God uses these judgments as warnings to Israel, and dare I say, even to us today, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 11, it says this. These things happened as examples and are written as warnings for us. God's big on ridding the church of deception, particularly when there's a significant kingdom move underway. C.S. Lewis talks about in his book, The Problem of Pain, about how God addresses deception like a surgeon addresses cancer. He gets in early and he acts. And here in the church, the early church, God moves fast to perform surgery and get rid of deception. Now, I'm saying this for awareness, but don't be fearful. Do not fear this, because here's the kicker. Here's the encouragement. God loves his church. And he is jealous over it, the Bible says. He is serious about his bride and it was purchased by the blood of his son. Now we talk about the church, but we mean you and I. Church isn't bricks and mortar. It's, it's not this, it's, the, it's this. This is what God is jealous for and fighting for, us. He gets rid of deception to protect us. Church is a society of people on the receiving end of God's grace. Church is where grace reigns and acting stops. Church is where we can all be significant through our relationship with him, not through what we do and the actions that we take. Get this, you don't have to earn what you've already inherited. In Christ, nobody's become somebody's without even trying. If only Ananias and Sapphira understood this. But by their behaviour, they were denying a big truth in Christian faith. We can't earn significance. We can't achieve wholeness, salvation or even our own potential through our own efforts. Greatness is a given gift that is received by the Spirit in spite of our sin, in spite of our flaws. Theologian John Stott writes this, Ananias and Sapphira wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificial generosity without the inconvenience of it. So in order to gain a reputation to which they had no right, they told a brazen lie. So why were they put to death for their actions? If everyone who told a lie to God in our churches today were to drop dead, can I tell you, the place would be empty and the undertakers would be doing a ripping trade and they'd be getting around in Ferraris. Uh, Aren't all of us at some time or another guilty of wanting a claim? My hand's up. Look, so why aren't we punished with a death sentence? Uh, Let me go to a bit of a clinical place for a minute and then we'll come back out. There's the question of why did God allow Ananias and Sapphira to die, but there's another question why are we still alive? The short answer is it's all because of God's grace. In Psalm 103, verse 10, it says this The Lord does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. That's grace, it's His kindness and his patience towards us the word tells us that God is patient with us and he is slow to anger the sober reflection of that is that sometimes I I forget that God's patience and his kindness is designed to steer me towards repentance not towards becoming more free in my sin and more bold in my sin now, I know I'm skating close to a bit of a legalistic edge here, so let's just get out of here pretty quick. Um, ultimately, the answer to why Ananias and Sapphira were killed is best left to the Lord himself. I suspect it's some of that example and warning stuff that we touched on in 1 Corinthians. Um, how's that for a handball? Thank you. Uh, I want to explore some biblical symbolism now and get into a bit of a more positive path, if we can. The name Ananias, in the original language, it's Hanan-Yah, hanan the given grace, and Yah, short for Yahweh. So Ananias' name is actually the given grace of God. There's another Ananias in the book of Acts, a different one. Uh, If you remember on the Damascus Road, Saul, who becomes Paul, is walking along, he encounters Christ, and he is blinded by that brightness, and he stays blind for three days. In Acts 9, God sends this other Ananias, the grace of God, To Paul. This Ananias prays for Paul and the scripture says that scales fall off Paul's eyes and he is filled with the Holy Spirit and the first thing that he sees is a person who represents the given grace of God. Grace opens our eyes, takes the scales off our eyes to the things of the Spirit, to the the goodness of God. Now, the symbolism here that I want to explore is that this is pure grace. This is the, 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 the second Ananias operating alone with Paul. But back in Acts chapter 5, Ananias, the grace of God, is not there by himself. He's married to Sapphira. Her original name is Beautiful Stone, or where we get Sapphire from. And there's a teaching that I've been listening to from Joseph Prince, and he says this, Jewish rabbis in the Talmud, which is the written version of the Jewish oral law, teach that the tablets on which the Ten Commandments were written on were made of stones encrusted with sapphire. In Exodus 24.10, I think you've got the verse up there on the screen, Moses and Aaron are on Mount Sinai, uh, Sinai and they see the God of Israel and under God's feet there appeared a pavement of sapphire just as clear as the sky itself. The Jewish oral law teaches that it's from this pavement that God carved out the tablets on which he wrote the law. So in Acts 5, Ananias, the grace of God, is married to the stone of the law. This mixture of grace and law doesn't work and leads to death. With, with Paul, when Ananias, the, the other Ananias, individually was working with Paul, we saw grace, we saw spirit. But with Ananias and Sapphira, the mixture of law and grace, ended up being deadly. And some people today, careful how I say this, some people today are like, oh, grace, it's all soft and greasy, it's, um, it's no good. What this generation needs is cold, hard truth. And they they have this perception that somehow grace is on this side and truth and law is on the other. John 1 verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. God didn't divide grace and truth. They are not separate. In the original Greek, grace and truth come from one verb. Uh, They're referred to as a singular unit since they are followed by a singular verb that is translated into English as came. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, but it's not they came through Jesus Christ, it's it came through Jesus Christ. One entity through Christ. Grace and truth are a singular unit. God sees grace and truth as one and the same. So... In this argument, it's not grace contrasted with truth. It's grace and truth contrasted with the law. Grace and truth aren't separate doctrines. They're not in opposition in any way. Grace and truth are a person. They are unified in the person of Jesus. Once the mixture... The confusion of grace and law was removed in Acts 5.11. It says, great fear came upon the church. This is um, a theologian called J.D. Greer, who I respect. He says this, my favourite definition of the fear of the Lord is awe mixed with intimacy. That's why in Amazing Grace, John Newton writes these words, it's grace that taught my heart to fear or to respect or to have that awe of God mixed with intimacy because as our fear of God that that respectful awe of him increases so does a sense of his love and a sense of what he has freed us from come into place so by removing the grace and law mix by nixing the mix we see more of who God is we grow in our awe of him and ultimately we grow in our intimacy with him Let's have a read of what happened after this event in Acts 5, verse 12 to 16. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets, lay them on beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on them. as as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and tormented and impure spirits, and all of them were healed. People were increasingly added. There were multitudes that came to the church. The sick were healed. This is important. God adds. God multiplies. We've seen that God subtracts, but he doesn't divide. That's not his strategy. Okay, so where to from here? Well, this is a bit of an inward journey for us. Here's a question, it's it's mostly for me, but I invite you to be challenged by this question as well. Am I comfortable to be authentic and vulnerable in the presence of God? Am I comfortable to be open and transparent in the presence of God's people? Can I be true to myself in the church, the safest place on earth where you can be? Uh, for me, am I more worried about looking spiritual or worried about the title that I've got or what people think of me? Um, am I too focused on how I can get people to know my name and know who I am and in doing so I pretend to be someone that I'm not? Uh, sometimes I want people to believe that I'm a bit of a Christian hero, you know, a bit of a, a, a exceptional Christian Christian expert a Bible scholar who's got it all together, that that somehow I'm, I'm closer to God, I'm more holy, I'm more perfect than I could ever be. Here's the liberating truth, and this will save you from a lot of unnecessary hard yards. God delights in using ordinary people, and I am the most ordinary of them all. He empowers ordinary people to do extraordinary things, and that is where we are headed as a church into the future, and into this community, and into the nations. Barnabas gave everything to a community of faith, not because he was just downright amazing, but because of God. Not because he was better than the other people, but because the grace of God and the power of the Spirit enabled him. Don't buy the lie that you have to be extraordinary to do great things for God. Don't fall for it because it's not true and it brings us back to that performance trap that we spoke about earlier. If you're connected to the Holy Spirit, it is he who moves us towards doing these extraordinary things. All through Acts, we see the Spirit of God moving followers of Jesus to be more loving, more aware, more interested in the needs of other people, their spiritual needs and their physical needs, And it is he that opens our eyes to how we can apply grace to other people. And that's the good news. Look, sometimes with people of mixed motivations, I I get this and God gets this too. Sometimes we want to do something that's great for God. And there's a part of you, there's a part of me that's hoping people will notice. That's okay if you're honest and authentic with God about that. Because he knows your heart. Like Ananias and Sapphira, the danger is when we start to lie about who we are and focus on status. These these two were literally dying to be recognised when God already had them in view. We can focus on Christ as our anchor and our status, which is in him. He is our recognition. He is our hope. And from that liberation, we can focus on the needs of those amongst us. By his grace, the Holy Spirit can empower us to do extraordinary things. Look at Macquarie Life Church. Look at Macquarie Care. Look at at our backyard that happens up in the car park here. We're a bunch of ordinary people who contribute and suddenly the church is doing extraordinary things that are now being looked at by political powers and endorsed and assisted by the community. Ordinary people connected to an extraordinary God is qualification enough to do amazing things in the kingdom. Can I pray for you? Hey God, please teach us to be authentic. Please show us and give us the safety to know that church is the safest place. Your presence is the safest place to take our massive masks off and to be who we are in you. To be authentic, to be vulnerable, to be open. Father, I pray that you would give us a revelation of your grace and your truth to live free from the bondage of law and performance, that we can be liberated by your grace and that we can sense and and taste your kindness and your patience. And i bit cheeky, God, but I pray none of us become examples or warnings to future generations of the church. I pray that through your grace, you would teach us and that we would be open to your spirit teaching us. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe um, this kindness and patience of God that we're talking of today is something that you're reaching out for. Uh, the Word of God tells us that God loved us so much, He was jealous for His church and His people so much that He gave His Son to die in place of our brokenness, of our shortcomings, our sin, and our failures. Maybe you'd be brave enough today to let your guard down to God, to take that mask off in front of Him, uh, not try to put yourself out there as something that you're not, but authentically acknowledge your need of Him. Maybe today is a good day to become a Christian, someone who submits their life to the love and the leadership of Jesus Christ. If that's you, I'm going to pray a prayer. I'd ask you to pray along with me, and at the end, We'll connect with you. We've got a a button on the screen there for live prayer. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, you can connect uh, through the office, through the email, through the website, get in touch. We want to know how we can support you in this. But if that's you, if today you want to become a Christian, pray this with me now. Hey God, it's time to stop keeping you out of my life. Today I acknowledge that I need you. I can't break free of my sin of my brokenness and of this performance trap myself and I want to let you in. I don't want to keep the door closed when you come knocking. I choose to trust you today as my saviour, as my Lord and as my friend. Thank you Jesus for what you've done for me. I take that on for myself today and I thank you for the free gift of an everlasting life with you and I invite you in. I choose to become a Christian and I place my life into your hands. In your name, amen. If you did pray that prayer, please reach out. We've got pastors here who would love to connect to you, get some resources to you to help you on this journey and get you connected. We love you. We hope you have a great... Hey, listen, if you're like Barnabas and you have a couple of spare briefcases of cash floating around and you don't know what to do and you'd like to give it to the church, give me a yell. You don't have to inconvenience yourself by coming into the church and dropping it off here. I'll come to you and I'll take care of it. Just give me a call it'll be right. I'll save you the hassle. Anyway, that's enough immaturity. Have a great week, Macquarie. God bless your socks off. Thanks, Craig. Another great message once again. I love the, uh, the challenges that Craig had for us tonight, to take the mask off, to be you know who we are, to be authentic, to be honest with God. And then there was one great statement that Craig said, that our God is jealous for us, that he's fighting for us. So what do we need to prove great message Craig thanks very much thank you for listening we hope you have enjoyed this message for more information please visit mccroylifechurch.com.au thank you for listening we hope you have enjoyed this message for more information please visit mccroylifechurch.com.au